DiscerningHearts.com presents Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the writer-in-residence and visiting fellow at Thomas More College in New Hampshire. He's the author of The Quest for Shakespeare and Through Shakespeare's Eyes. His other books include literary biographies of Oscar Wilde, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He is the co-editor of the St. Austin Review, a premier international journal of Catholic culture, literature, and ideas. He is the editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions, on which this series is based. The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Joseph, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. Particularly to talk about one of the all-time greats, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, and of course this magnum opus, the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I mean we've we've discussed many many great works of literature, you know, over the over the last couple of years on discerning hearts, and uh, it would would really be a sin of omission if we didn't include in those illustrious titles that we've included already, the Lord of the Rings, which uh, is certainly uh, I would concur with the judgment of many opinion polls that have been carried out in the last twenty or so years that it's the greatest work of the twentieth century. I, I would certainly concur with that, and therefore it deserves to be up there with the great work of Western civilization and I think we would have we would have been there'd been an element of culpability if you and I had not included it in this wonderful list of works that we've discussed over the over the months and years. I had the tremendous blessing as a young mother picking up a, a tremendous volume that has the all the various books that comprise the Lord of the Rings all in one volume and I would sit down with this book that is larger than most Bibles and <laughs> <laughs> just enter into a tale that is so rich. I mean, how do you even begin to describe the the, the man who this flowed from? Yeah, well, I mean, Tolkien is a genius. Uh, he's lifelong practicing Catholic. He described the Lord of the, Lord of the Rings as, uh, I'm quoting him now, the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Uh, he spoke about the fact that he's a Catholic as being the most significant uh, factor in his relationship as author to the work. So this is a profoundly religious work, and perhaps not obviously uh, to many people, but, but, but indubitably it is a profoundly religious work. And it's not a novel. I mean, it, it's, 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 a, it's not, not just a groundbreaking work, it's a genre-breaking work, because you can't really call it the Lord of the Rings a novel. You really have to call it an epic. It has more in common with Homer and Virgil and Dante than it has with, uh, with contemporary fiction. We've said this so often in the course of, the, of our conversations about viewing a film adaptation before reading the work. And in the case of The Lord of the Rings, even though the film was a, a, a tremendous effort, it still did not come close to capturing the, the scope of this work. Yeah, it's very difficult, if not impossible, for, uh, for a, a film adaptation to capture the depth and integrity of a work of literature, partly because I think in literature, the the uh, the play of the imagination that we're invited to to in, in engage on that level of of the imagination uh, cannot really be um, 
replicated in, in film. It's very much an impressionistic media. You can only give a, um, uh, an impression of the depth of the imagination that's possible uh, in a work of literature. So even at its best, a film adaptation is going to be a poor shadow or a mere shadow of, uh, of a work of literature. At its worst, of course, it's a perversion or an inversion of the very meaning of the work. So yes, I think I feel sorry for people that have made the big mistake, the blunder, of, uh, of watching the movies before reading the work. Because what will happen is that their, their, their imagination would have been gatecrashed by Peter Jackson, that when they pick up the, the, the book to read it, they're going to see the, the actors uh, where they should see the characters. Uh, and I think that, 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 that impoverishes their experience. Uh, not to say, by the way, I'm certainly not deterring people from reading it if they've seen the film. It's a work that everyone, sh- everyone should read uh, and, and everybody will enjoy. But the, 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 the level of enjoyment will certainly be impaired if one's uh, allowed Peter Jackson to gatecrash one's imagination beforehand. It, it is one of those things where you just have to wash that away, if that was the case, and just begin with this book, even in the, the, the foreword by Tolkien himself, setting the stage. I mean, you can almost see him coming out and sitting down and preparing you for the event. And then it, he takes you into level upon level of generation upon generation in such an enthralling way. Absolutely, we I mean, we lose ourselves in it, uh, it, it because it it is so deep and so rich and so realistic. Uh, we suspend our disbelief because it's so believable, and then in losing ourselves, paradoxically, we find ourselves. I mean, Tolkien said that a good fairy story, and uh, the, uh, the Lord of the Rings is a good fairy story. It's a world set in the world of fairy, the world of, of elves, etc. Um, that uh, that a good fairy story holds up a mirror to man. In other words. It shows us ourselves. We see ourselves reflected in the story. So in that sense, you know, it, it's very much a realistic work, and it's a big mistake to think that somehow it's escaping from reality. It's not escaping from reality. Uh, it's escaping, if you like. This, this is a, the, the the argument that Tolkien used in his famous lecture, and then published as an essay on fairy stories. That it's not an escape from reality in the sense of ultimate reality. It's, a, it's an escape from materialism, because he basically said materialism turns life into a prison. That there's nothing but the prison walls, the three dimensions. But as there is something other than the prison walls and the three dimensions, as there's something beyond the merely material, to think of something other than prison guards and prison walls uh, is 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 a healthy form of escape. Because getting beyond the trap and prison of, imp- of uh, materialism into the real supernatural cosmos that exists beyond and within it. We are in- encounter the hobbits. Uh, originally, they, they are the little ones who come from, in ancient times, according to the tale, may have lived in holes in the ground. And they are the ones who carry this story in the, in the, in the moral throughout. Yeah, they're absolutely, I mean, they're adorable, they're delightful creatures, uh, they're, they're very homely uh, in the best sense of the word. I mean, even the very name, you know, Hobbit, which basically is a word that it seems that Tolkien invented. I mean, obviously, you know, he, he borrowed lots from the, what he would call the cauldron of story, the, 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 the accumulated, uh, the accumulated story 
stories and tales of, of the whole of, of civilization. He borrowed lots. Elves, obviously, were not invented by him, and dwarves were not invented by him, and dragons were not invented by him. But hobbits basically appear to be largely his own in- invention. And, you know, the name hobbit reminds us of hobbit as in home, as in habit, a creature of home, a creature of habit, a hobbit, and even, even you know, the rabbit, something as cuddly and warm as a, a rabbit. I mean, uh, hobbits live in holes in the ground. They have big furry feet. So, you know, home, habit, rabbit. I mean, they're, 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 what it ultimately is, we feel at home with them because they're homely. And at the deepest level, hobbits uh, represent the exaltation of the humble. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Temptation enters the Shire. It is one that would affect one of their own. Well, actually two of their own, wouldn't it? Yeah, basically, you know, the reason, the reason that, uh, that, that the hobbits have a vocation uh, to be the ring bearers, they have a calling to be the ring bearers, is because they are the humble and the unknown and those that do not seek great adventures, do not seek, seek greatness, they have no great ambition. So they're not, therefore not easily corrupted by the power of the ring, which is synonymous with sin itself. So it's the humble that are most uh, um, immune from the power of the temptation to pride. And ultimately, of course, pride is the father of all sin. So uh, therefore, it is the Bilbo and then uh, Frodo uh, who are the ring bearers in, 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 in the story, in The Hobbit and in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, and the, the greats, such as Aragorn and Gandalf and Galadriel, these great elves and wizards and kings, uh, fear the ring because they are great and they are powerful and there's the, always this danger that the great and powerful will succumb to the temptations of greatness and power, whereas the humble, if you like, are more immune from that temptation. How did Tolkien envision the interplay with all these different levels, as you mentioned, the dwarves and the elves, as well as man? Well, at, at its deepest level, uh, the Lord of the Rings works as uh, uh, on the level of theology, and that's 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 very important to to uh, to bear that in mind at all times. And when when Tolkien says the Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and uh, and Catholic work, he's basically telling us that if you want to, to understand this work on a, on the deepest level, you have to understand it on the level of theology. He was very much at pains to to distance himself from efforts to make it, uh, for instance, a political uh, allegory. Uh, it works on the level of theology. And ultimately, the, the, the key that unlocks the Lord of the Rings for us is uh, the date on which the ring is destroyed. The ring is destroyed on March the 25th. March the 25th is, of course, the Feast of Denunciation. But it's also, and, and perhaps less known, but nonetheless as true, is the date on which uh, Christ was crucified. It's the date of uh, the original Good Friday. Now, we, we, of course, celebrate Good Friday as a movable feast these days, but it happened once and once only as a, uh, as a moment in history on one particular day, witnessed by the mother of Christ and by the disciple John. And obviously, uh, that date would have been... Um, uh, absolutely scored into their memory. I remember the day on which my father 
died, in which my mother died. I'm absolutely sure the Blessed Virgin remembered the date on which Christ died, as would St. John, as would even the disciples that ran away, such as St. Peter. They know what on what day that happened. So that passed down in tradition, and it was March the 25th. So if March the 25th is the date of the crucifixion and the date of the Annunciation and the date on which the ring is destroyed, Tolkien make, gives it that date, then we see that the ring becomes synonymous with sin itself, original sin in particular, sin in general. And the destruction of the ring and the destruction of sin happens on the same day, the same date. Mount Doom uh, in Mordor becomes Golgotha in the Valley of Death, Mortis, Mordor, Death. Um, so we begin to see the parallel and the analogy between the, the ultimate uh, drama of all of our lives, which is uh, sin and grace and the life, death and resurrection of Christ and its effect upon us and upon the cosmos in which we live. This is the level, the scope and the landscape, basically, the theological landscape in which the whole story takes place. The character of Gandalf, help us to appreciate his significance in the story. Yeah, basically, Tolkien is very subtle. I mean, what The Lord of the Rings isn't is a formal allegory. So there's no one figure that represents Christ uh, at all times. As, for instance, Aslan does in Narnia. Aslan is always the figure of Christ, uh, the son of the emperor beyond the sea. He's the the uh, analogy with Christ uh, throughout all seven stories of the Chronicles of Narnia. The Lord of the Rings is much more subtle. There's no Christ figure in that sense. But there are several characters who remind us of Christ in certain attributes that they have or certain things that they do. So Gandalf, for instance, of course, on a literal level, he's the wizard, uh, the guide, the mentor, um, the wise man. But uh, insofar as he dies at the bridge of Khazad-dûm, laying down his life for his friends, no greater love has any man, says Christ, to lay down his life for his friends. Insofar as Gandalf lays down his life for his friends at the bridge of Khazad-dûm, he, he reminds us of Christ. And if that were the case, it's even more the case when hundreds of pages later, where after we've believed that Gandalf is dead, he reappears in the story, and not only resurrected, but transfigured. I mean, he, he was Gandalf the Grey. He's now Gandalf the White. Uh, his robe is so dazzling that they can't look upon him. And in the end, he has to put his grey cloak over the white, and it's as if a cloud passes over the sun. So the figure of the resurrected Gandalf is also a figure of a transfigured Gandalf. And of course, so what we see in Gandalf's death, resurrection, and transfiguration is something that reminds us of Christ without ever being Christ in a formally allegorical way. What about those men of earth who are questing, the, those who journey with the hobbits, the dwarves, uh, the, those who would be king. Yeah, the, 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 the key element here is that when, when Tolkien says that the Lord of the Rings holds up a mirror to man, when fairy stories hold up a mirror to man, we have to understand what exactly is man. So we have this get back to basics here. Uh, and of course, for, 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 for the Enlightenment, man is, is, is merely uh, Homo sapiens. Um, and even that's an absurd name because sapiens, of course, is Latin for wisdom. And none of us are born wise. Wisdom is not something which is an attribute naturally of who we are. Um, what they really meant is that we're clever. Um, you know, we're, we're smart apes, we're, we're cleverer than the chimpanzees. Um, and of course, what, what one thing that Tolkien shows us in The Lord of the Rings is a great deal of difference between 
wisdom and cleverness. Orcs are clever. Salvon's clever. Adolf Hitler is clever. None of them are wise. So mm. there's a big difference between wisdom and cleverness, and that's one of the one of the things that the Lord of the Rings shows us, and that Tolkien is at pains to show us. But what Tolkien under, understands as being a, a man as being, and what all Christians understand mankind as being, is Homo viator. That's man on a journey. That all of us is here for one reason and one purpose only, and that's to live our lives as a quest. And the quest is to get to heaven, to be with God in eternity. And on that quest for our lives, there are there are there are temptations and dragons and demons, uh, and sins, and and we're going to fall. Uh, but it's a, it's a quest. It's a perilous quest um, that uh, all of us are called to. And the, only purpose of life is to is to achieve that quest, which is to be with God in heaven. And that's what a Christian understands man to be: Homo viator, man on the journey. So, therefore, the you know, the journey of, of of Frodo in the Lord of the Rings, the journey of Bilbo in the Lord of the Rings, the journey of the the other characters in the Fellowship of the Ring that travel with Frodo, are all, if you like, mirrors of ourselves as Homo viator, as 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 men on a journey with the purpose and the sole purpose of getting to God. Fascinating, especially when taken in that perspective. Oh, if you can, talk to us about the dwarves and the elves, their relationship in that, in that fellowship. Yeah, well, the most important thing about the, the elves, and they are very, they're a very important uh, uh, aspect of the work, is that the, the, the Tolkien was asked um, after the work was published, in a letter, someone wrote to him to say, is the Lord of the Rings an allegory of atomic power? And he wrote back saying, no, it's not, mm. but it is an allegory of power, particularly power usurped for domination. And he, and he uh, capitalized the P in power. So it's, it is an allegory of power. It's an important aspect of it. But he said, but more than that, it's an allegory of death and immortality. And this, again, this is a very key uh, key aspect of what the uh, the Lord of the Rings is, an allegory of death and immortality. Now, the difference between men and elves is that men die and elves don't. Elves are immortal. Whereas men, as the poem, the famous poem that starts the Lord of the Rings says, and it talks about the different races in, in Middle Earth, it says, nine for mortal men doomed to die. Nine for mortal men doomed to die. And I know of nowhere in the whole history of English poetry where the word death is alluded to as much and as often in one single line of poetry. So nine for mortal death, men death, doomed death, die death. Um, so what defines us is the fact that we die. What defines the elves is the fact that they don't die. And the thing we learn from that, first of all, is there's a big difference between immortality not dying, and eternity. So there's a very big difference between immortal life and eternal life, which the modern world, of course, with its, with its uh, frenzy to, to keep us all alive for as long as possible um, and to cheat death, um, does not understand that difference. Uh, that basically, um, that to, to live in time forever is, as Galadriel, the, the elven queen, says in The Lord of the Rings, uh, is, is to live in the long defeat with only occasional glimpses of final victory. And Tolkien, in one of his letters, says that as a Christian, I see history as the long defeat with only occasional glimpses of final victory. So uh, uh, basically, because this, this cosmos is fallen and broken and subject to sin, uh, there's no way that evil can be 
finally defeated this side of the grave or within time before until until unless the second coming of christ so consequently our, our, our battles against evil are in some sense a part of a long defeat because sin and evil always comes back like a fungus and of course we have to continually uh, fight it otherwise it takes over but we're never going to finally vanquish it the debt the uh, death and sin is only finally vanquished in heaven, which is something which happens in eternity, not in time. Which is why the elves say, uh, this is in the Silmarillion, uh, another of Tolkien's works, not in the Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. that death is the gift of Iluvata to man. Iluvata is the All-Father, God. So death is the gift of God to man. This is a profound theological point, that ultimately um, that we have to die in order to enter into the presence of God. And therefore, immortality is not something that any of us should desire. It's merely to accept the long defeat instead of the final victory. Mm, fascinating. As the, as the character of the dwarves, what would they be bringing into this fellowship then? Well, I think that the, the, the key element uh, that the dwarves bring in is, is in their, um, in their um, I should say, collision, in their, uh, the tension that they bring into the story in relation to the elves. Because the elves um, uh, say they put all, the elves put all that they love and all that they are into all that they make. Uh, they're very much, uh, if you like, artists in the best absolute sense of that word that uh, that the creativity is a gift from god and to create is to be godlike uh in in the in the use of that creative gift the the, the dwarves on the other hand although they also very skilled they sort of work on a on, on a level which is far more should we say materialistic they grub around in the earth they make things that are they may be beautiful but that's of secondary importance they make things that are useful uh and and they're more earthbound so i think it it it's the the difference between the if you like the the true creativity of the elves that points towards heaven and and the dwarves that that who in their own uh craftsmanship should we say are always uh wedded to the earth I have to talk about one of the characters that just kind of touches my heart personally, and I think is someone who might have gotten short shrift, if I can say that, and that's Samwise. For me, he is a hero. He is a faithfulness. He Absolutely. is a faithfulness. If you, if you were to ask, you know, the lovers of Lord of the Rings, who their favorite character is. Uh, Samwise Gamgee would be up there, I think, amongst the most favorite. And I think it's because he's uh, the servant of the servants. And this is, of course, a title that a pope has, the servant of the servants of God, that Frodo, if you like, insofar as Frodo is the ring bearer, um, uh, he is a Christ figure. Um, the ring, of course, if the ring is synonymous with sin, then the bearing of the carrying of the ring is like carrying the cross. The wearing of the ring is is the actual committing of sin, but to bear the ring, to carry the ring, but not wear it, is to carry the cross. Um, which is why uh, that Frodo leaves um, uh, Rivendell with the Fellowship of the Ring on December the twenty fifth. Uh, and arrives at Mount Doom, Golgotha, on March the 25th. In other words, the journey from Rivendell to Mount Doom is the life of Christ. So there's a sense in which Frodo is a Christ figure. And insofar as Frodo is a Christ figure, 
in his role as ring bearer, Samwise Gamgee is in the role of the loyal disciple who follows the master through thick and thin, uh, willing to lay down his life uh, in his service to the master and to walk through the valley of death with him and ultimately to lift him up uh, and and experience the miracle of uh, on Mount Doom. You know, when Samwise uh, Gamgee picks up um, Frodo, fully expecting he won't have the strength to carry him ex- except a few yards before both of them will collapse and the, and the crest will end in glorious failure. That as he picks up Frodo, he feels his burden become miraculously light so that Frodo does not feel any heavier than a, a hobbit child uh, playing piggyback back in the Shire. And then we have this sort of great uh, uh, resonance here with, um, with the gospel and with Christ's promise that, uh, uh, that he will make our burden light, the carrying of our cross, his yoke is easy. Um, so Sam is, is the loyal, faithful disciple, the servant of the servants. And in that, I think, it is the exaltation of the humble to, to a sublime degree, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And I think insofar as we love and admire Sam, we love and admire that virtue of humility and quiet service even unto death, which is the mark of all true love. So I think that Sam is indeed someone who is lovable and someone that all of us should try to emulate in our own lives. I'm so glad you, you put it so beautifully because he really is, uh, for me, the literary expression of the saint this is what the saint does this yes is... exactly exactly i mean and, and tolkien actually you know based sam on on, on on real people he met during the first world war who were you know who were say working class they weren't as well educated as he was they weren't as as, as um eloquent with speech as he was wasn't they weren't as articulate but he recognized in them a virtue uh, and a courage and a sense of service that was far superior to him, to himself. Um, so he did see in the real life Samwise Gamgees on which he modelled his character uh, these virtues of, of 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 humility and courage. Um, that uh, again, all of us are meant to emulate and to see Sam as a saint. I think is is a correct way of looking at him as a, as as a as a vision, as an ideal of the saint that all of us are meant to be inspired by and aspire towards. Yeah, that, that we could do that too. Exactly. You know, that we should follow in the footsteps of Sam, who's following in the footsteps of Frodo, who's following in the footsteps of Christ. Mm. There is so much here, and we have only just touched the tip of the iceberg, but I hope we've encouraged people to go out and pick up the work and actually spend time. It may take a very long time to read it. It may take a short time, depending on how enthralled you become with it. But but do pick it up. I, I, Joseph, any final thoughts on this very short conversation? Well, basically, the, the Lord of the Rings is a majestic work. It teaches us so much about life. It teaches us so much about ourselves. It teaches us so much about the Catholic faith. But really, uh, I, would, I would almost go as far as saying it's a sin of omission to have not read it. Uh, but certainly, uh, that might be going too far, because obviously we don't literally have to go to confession if we haven't read the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would say that we, we, are, we are impoverishing ourselves uh, if we are not uh, allowing ourselves access to the rich richness and wealth spiritual wealth and wealth of wisdom that lord of the rings contains certainly don't be intimidated by it 
I, you know, those who will rush out and pick up the latest bestseller, go here first. If you haven't oh, yeah. read it, absolutely. I mean, I, I would certainly say that, that that if you're going out and buying modern works of literature that, by comparison, are trivial and trash, um, then you really need to start start thinking. Well, I, I should read this because it has it has a, a weight of wisdom and a weight of virtue, which will enrich uh, the reader of it always, and, and basically and ultimately bring them closer to the truth. And to bring some close, someone closer to the truth is to bring them closer to Christ. And The Lord of the Rings does bring us closer to Christ. In that sense, if you like, it does the same thing as all the great works of Christian literature, but it does it more sublimely than most. There are very, very few works of Christian literature that are better as literature and better as morality and better as wisdom than The Lord of the Rings. Joseph, have you ever had the experience that when you've sat down and you've read a work, that when you were done, you actually felt darkened in a way, that something came in and darkened you? It, Lord of the Rings is one of those, when you read it, you feel, I, I, when you shut it, the, the book for the, the last time, there's light. I, I, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, at its worst, bad, wicked art, and that includes literature and film, um, uh, leave us slimed. We literally mm-hmm. are dirtied by it, and our minds are polluted by it, and we are actually, um, if you like, uh, to use a phrase that we might lift from the Lord of the Rings, golemized by it, that our souls somehow are shriveled by the experience. Well, the Lord of the Rings is the opposite, really, is that that it enlightens us in the best sense of the word, that it uh, brings the light of goodness, the light of grace into our hearts, into our minds, into our experience of reading the work and into the way that we apply that experience of reading the work to the broader life in which we live. So the Lord of the Rings is something which enriches and enlightens, uh, which is very different, as, as you rightly say, uh, from much modern literature, which endarkens us and, and leaves us dirty. Joseph Pierce, thank you so very much. My pleasure as always, Chris. God bless you. You've been listening to Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. To hear and or to download this episode along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join us next time for Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.